As we, uh, as we look at the world around us, you just watch the news, just, just kind of observe what's going on, it appears that the world is spir- spiraling out of control, and that evil is winning, and that the church is losing. You even see it in some headlines, church attendance is declining, churches are closing, depravity seems to multiply by the week, false teaching is being proliferated. So what are faithful Christians to do and to think in the midst of all of this? As it, as it seems oftentimes like the church is losing and, and evil is winning. That's the question that today's passage answers. We're going to be in uh, Revelation chapter 8 is where we're going to begin. And you can turn there in your Bibles and we're going to read in a moment. But I want to, uh, before that, just kind of do a recap since we've taken a, a several week break from our series in the book of Revelation. I want to remind you of where we're at. So in Revelation 4 and 5, Jesus, the Lamb who was slain, uh, we see that He's alive and reigning at God's right hand, and He is the one who is worthy to go and to take the scroll from the right hand of the one who's seated on the throne. In other words, He's the one that has the, the authority to judge the earth. And as He takes the scroll... Uh, from the one seated on the throne, he breaks the seals, unveiling and unleashing God's judgment upon the earth. And I said when we covered this, the, the text in Revelation chapter 6 and 7 that uh, this book, Revelation, is not in chronological order. Okay, The various visions do not describe different times or, or sequences of events. They all describe the same period between Jesus' ascension in his return, but from different perspectives and emphases. And this period is also called the last days, or the church age. It's everything between Jesus' ascension and his return. And if you'll recall, the the seals in Revelation chapter 6 and 7 emphasize that the tribulations that unfold in the last days serve both to punish the wicked and to purify the godly. So the wars and the rumors of wars and the pestilence and the earthquakes and famines, all those things, we, we discussed how both the godly and the ungodly are caught up in these things, right? But the difference is that for the godly, these events have a, a purifying effect, leading us to depend more fully on Jesus. But for the ungodly, these things are only a harbinger of a greater final judgment to come. And that's what we talked about in, in Revelation 6 and 7. But in Revelation chapters 8 through 11, we change gears. We're not going to read the entire thing because it's, it's four chapters. We're covering a lot of ground this morning. But what I want to do is give you an overview of what these four ta- chapters are telling us. Then, I'll, then we're gonna, I'm going to give you the main idea, and then we're going to unpack the two major themes in this passage. Okay? So in, in Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, the seventh seal is broken. Now, you might recall that the sixth seal was the final judgment. That was Jesus, Jesus, the return of Christ in the sixth seal. So why a seventh seal? If the sixth seal was the end, if that was the final judgment, what's the seventh seal all about? Well, the seventh seal leads to the blowing of the seven trumpets. It, it acts as sort of a literary device that leads us into the seven trumpets. And the trumpets describe the same time period as the first six seals, but from a different perspective. So unlike the seals, 
which affect God's people, the focus in the trumpet judgments is on how God's judgment impacts the unbelieving world that opposes him and oppresses his people. And sandwiched between the sixth and the seventh trumpet is an interlude, another set of visions. And it's the vision of the little scroll and the two witnesses. And this vision gives yet another perspective on the same time period. It emphasizes God's call to the church to keep proclaiming His Word. So both visions, the vision of the trumpets and the vision of the little scroll and the two witnesses cover the same time period, but they reveal different details and they have different emphases on the last days. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? I know we're, we'll get there. So the trumpet judgments in chapters 8 and 9 emphasize God's judgment upon the unbelieving world. And the little scroll and the two witnesses in chapters 10 and 11 emphasize God's call on the church to faithfully proclaim His word in the last Days And then at the end of chapter 11, in verses 15 to 19, the seventh trumpet is blown, which commences the final judgment. So there's, there's a visual behind me, and hopefully this can kind of give you a, a picture. Um, yeah, there it is. So first six trumpets, chapters 8 and 9, the little scroll and the two witnesses, chapter 10 through chapter 11, verse 14, and then at the end of chapter 11, the seventh trumpet. That's how this text is laid out. Hopefully that's helpful. The main idea of the sermon this morning is that the church must faithfully proclaim God's message of coming judgment amidst vehement opposition because it is true. The church must faithfully proclaim God's message of coming judgment amidst vehement opposition because it is true. And we're going to unpack that in two parts. In chapters 8 and 9, we're going to look at God's condemnation of the wicked. And then in chapters 10 and 11, we'll look at God's call to the church. Another way to, to phrase that would be in chapters 8 and 9, we're going to see how God is bringing judgment upon the unbelieving world in the last days already. It's already begun. And in chapters 10 and 11, we're going to look at what is the church called to do and what can we expect in the last days during that same time period, okay? So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to read Revelation 8, verses 1 to 6, and then we're going to start going through, and we're going to read portions of this text as we walk through chapters 8 and 11, okay? So let me pray. God, I need your help right now. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would come and that you would fill me and that you would speak through me and that you would speak through your word to us. God, I pray that uh, your word would not return void in our lives this morning. Lord, I, I need your help. I'm weak. I don't have anything to offer. I can't even rightly understand your word unless you open my eyes, unless you help me, let alone teach it to others. So God, I pray that now you would come and just use me as a weak vessel to, to, to accurately teach your word and to help us think about how it applies to our lives. God, I pray that you know the condition in the heart of every single person in this room. You know exactly what we need to hear. And so, God, I pray that you would minister to us now, administer exactly what we need in this moment, in this place, God. I pray that you would open our eyes to the spiritual realities around us, that there really is a spiritual war going on, 
and that I pray that as a result of, of what we hear from your word this morning, that your people, God, would not live for the things of this world that are going to pass away, but that we would live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And I pray that for anyone in here who's not a Christian, who's not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, who's not born again, that today would be the day of salvation, that they would hear your voice, that you would open their eyes, that their hearts would not remain hard, but that they would be open, that their hearts would be softened, and that they'd be born again. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Revelation 8, 1-6 says this, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. So the trumpet judgments from God commence in response to the prayers of God's people. That's what we see here in the first six verses of chapter 8. In verses 3 to 5, the the angel takes the fire from the altar where the prayers of God's people are rising up to God and he throws the fire on the earth, which signifies judgment. This, what's happening here, is the answer to the prayers of the saints in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10 and 11. If you'll recall from last time, where at the altar they pray, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? This is that prayer beginning to be answered. So this, these trumpet judgments are a judgment against the unbelieving world that opposes God and His people. Uh, I don't have time to read uh, all of chapters 8 and 9, which begin to describe in detail the trumpet judgments, so I'm going to kind of walk us through them. But one thing I want to point out is that these trumpet judgments are patterned after the plagues on Egypt in the book of Exodus. So the first trumpet corresponds to the plague of hail. You'll notice there's hail and fire. And then in the second and third trumpet, the uh, waters and rivers are struck. And that corresponds to the plague on the Nile River where the water of the Nile was turned to blood. The fourth trumpet corresponds to the plague of darkness. In Egypt, and then the fifth trumpet corresponds to the plague of locusts in Egypt. This is not an accident, okay? This is very intentional. In fact, this entire sequence of the trumpet judgments mirrors the Exodus event. In each of these passages, there's God's people cry out for deliverance, God responds with mighty acts of judgment in the form of plagues on the oppressors, the oppressors refuse to give God glory and they harden their hearts. And then God decisively defeats the oppressors in one final act of judgment. So in Exodus, Egypt's army is swallowed up in the Red Sea and God brings Israel into the promised land. And at the seventh trumpet, which we're going to see later at the end of chapter 11, the final judgment, unbelievers will be swallowed up forever and God's people will be vindicated and enter into eternal freedom with Him. That's what we see mirrored here in these trumpet judgments in chapters 
8 and 9. So the saints are calling out to God for deliverance. Oh God, faithful and true, how long until you bring us justice? God responds with these acts of judgment that are unfolding now. But as we're going to see at the end of chapter 9, the unbelieving world will still refuse to repent. Like Pharaoh in Egypt, they will harden their hearts. And there is a final judgment day coming when the enemies of God will be swallowed up forever. So the judgments in Exodus are a foreshadowing of God's judgment against the unbelieving world in the church age. I just want to stop and pause it. One of the joys of preaching through Revelation, by the way, is it is just astounding to me how all these threads that run through Scripture, like this is one story right here, and it is just amazing to see how from start to finish, from creation to restoration, God has been at work, and you can see all these threads tied together. I wish we had hours to sit together and I could just just talk through some of these details in the text because it's amazing. Like the Old Testament is all over the pages of Revelation. I wish I had time to jump in more, but maybe we can, if you want to know more, come and talk to me afterwards and we can dive in. But the, the judgments in Exodus are a foreshadowing of God's judgment against the unbelieving world in the church age. And as I said, these judgments have already begun to unfold in the first through the six trumpets. So let me briefly walk through some of those. In the first through the fourth trumpets, we learn that a third of the earth and the sea and the sky are struck. Now, this doesn't mean a literal third. It, it signifies a partial judgment. It's a foreshadowing of final judgment. And these judgments point to the unraveling of the created order. Every aspect of creation, land, sea, and sky, are all affected. It's a sign that those who dwell on the earth have trusted in a false hope. The book of Revelation commonly uses the term, those who dwell on the earth, to refer to unbelievers. This watch has been doing this a lot lately, I don't know why. It's like Doug Johnson's like, say it again, preacher, right? So Revelation, as I was saying, commonly uses the term those who dwell on the earth to refer to unbelievers because their hope is in the things of this world. And so as the world's resources are impacted by these judgments, the very things that the ungodly depend on to meet their needs begins to crumble. After the fourth trumpet, a shift takes place. Listen to verse 13. John says, Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So this signifies that the judgment brought on by the next three trumpets will be much more severe. And at the blast of the fifth trumpet, the bottomless pit is opened, which is symbolic for demonic, satanic forces. And and it releases demonic beings resembling locusts. So let's read verses 3 to 6 of chapter 9. It says, Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. 
And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. So, again, these are not literal locusts because they are told not to harm the grass or plants or trees. Rather, they are told to torment people, namely those who do not have the seal of God. And they are permitted to do so for five months, symbolizing a fixed period of time. And the torment that they are inflicting is a spiritual one. And the spiritual torment is so great that people will long for death, but will not be able to find it. Now, this does not mean that every single unbeliever is suicidal or unhappy. The point is that this unhappiness and the desire to die characterizes fallen humanity in general. See, while many people appear happy or content, those who dwell on the earth can only distract themselves from the emptiness of this world. But the inevitability of death is a dark cloud that is always close by, ready to close in whenever the distraction is over. And so the existence of fallen human beings is a frantic hurrying from one distraction to the next, trying to escape the spiritual torment. At the blast of the sixth trumpet, John sees a vast number of troops on horses released to kill a third of mankind. The horses, we're told, they breathe fire and smoke and sulfur, which symbolize further plagues. And again, a third of mankind is a symbolic number, meaning that a great many will die, but not everyone. The final judgment has yet to come. These are also demonic forces that are causing this chaos and bringing about this death. And the description of the horses makes, makes that clear that these are not literal beings, but demonic forces. So the bottom line is that all of these judgments expose the shaky foundation of trusting in this world. And they are warning signs, they are early warning signs pointing to a coming final judgment. God is mercifully giving people a chance to repent throughout this time. But despite the clarity of these judgments exposing the, the fragile nature of this world and the folly of trusting in the things of this world, we're told that most people will not repent. Look with me at verse 20 and 21 of chapter 9. It says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So just as Pharaoh and Egypt's heart was hardened, despite God's spectacular judgments and the plagues, those who dwell on the earth will refuse to repent. Does, does this mean that no unbeliever is ever going to repent? No, that's not what it means. Many people will repent, praise God, but what this is telling us is that the majority will remain hardened in their sin. Why is that? Because the Bible tells us that apart from Christ, we're dead in our sin. Romans chapter 8, verse 7 says that the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
the essence of sin is idolatry. It's worshiping and serving the things that God has created rather than God. And that includes the worship of self. The sinful nature does not want God to rule and does not want to submit to God. And so instead, people turn to idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Idols cannot deliver what we look to them to provide, and yet unbelievers are blind to this and they fail to see it. That's what the hardness of heart is. And the only way out of this spiritual blindness is to be born again. 2 Corinthians Chapter 4, verses 3 to 6 tells us this. It explains this. It says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The gospel, the good news, is that Christ died for idolaters, for spiritual adulterers. God would be perfectly just in pouring out His righteous judgment upon us for rebelling against Him. But instead, he poured it out upon Jesus at the cross. Jesus died the death that we deserve, and then Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he is the Son of God and that his blood is sufficient to cover all of our sins. And anyone who acknowledges their rebellious idolatry and turns away from it and trusts in Jesus will have the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life. And the faith to do that, the faith to make the decision to do that is a gift from God. God must open our spiritual eyes by His grace. So if you are feeling the weight of your sin this morning, call out to God to save you. Like the blind man Bartimaeus on the road in Mark chapter 10. I read this this morning. He called out to Jesus when he heard that Jesus was passing by. Lord, I want to see. Open my eyes. If that's you this morning, call that out to God, and He will open your eyes. Psalm 51, 17 says that God will not reject a broken or repentant heart. The scales will fall from your eyes when you call out to Him. That's good news. And if you are a believer, let's not move on without pausing to marvel that we are saved. Lest we forget, Jesus said that the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and there are many who will take it. And the way, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. And were it not for God's grace, brothers and sisters, we would be counted among those hard-hearted idolaters in Revelation 9, 20 and 21, defiantly opposing God even as our ship is sinking. But praise God, we are not. God has, by His grace, rescued us. Another way that Revelation chapter 8 and 9 helps us as believers is by recognizing that we do not need to despair at the unraveling of this earthly kingdom. As we look at the world around us, we think, how can people be so blind? How could someone insist that you can just be any gender you want? That seems like insanity. 
I mean, biology tells us that that's not the case. How can people think that way? How can we kill so many babies in the womb and pretend that it's not murder? How can people be so angry at each other over politics that they literally hate one another? What are we doing? What's happening to our world? It can be easy to look around at all these things and, and panic and go, oh no, what's happening around us? And if your hope is in this world, then these developments, they truly are scary and and maddening and they might even make you really angry when you look at them. I was, I was listening to a popular podcaster a couple weeks ago discussing some of the reactions to COVID-19 and he was so frustrated and angry and it struck me that that's because his hope is in this world. He wants America to stop unraveling in his, in his view, to go back to the way it used to be and he feels hopeless to stop it. So all he can do is is either rage or despair. Is it any wonder that our world is so depressed and angry? It's because it's unraveling and there's nothing we can do to stop it. But as believers, we should not be surprised. God's Word tells us that the love of many will grow cold, that many will be deceived. That's precisely what Satan does. He deceives people and puts them into darkness. He incites violence and division between people. He pulls people into greater and greater depravity, convincing them that if they just push the envelope just a little bit more, then then they'll finally be happy. But it's the proverbial carrot on a stick. They never get there, and it just ends in greater and greater emptiness that ultimately ends in death. Those who dwell on the earth have no hope in another kingdom. This is the only one they've got, and it's unraveling, and it's maddening to them. And it's, it's despairing to them. But church, our hope is not in this world. We have a better kingdom, and we have a true king who's an eternal king, and a kingdom that will not pass away. So since our hope isn't in this kingdom, we don't need to despair as we see the world unraveling around us. Evil is not winning. In fact, Revelation 8 and 9 tells us it's part of God's righteous judgment, His plan. So, turn off Fox News and CNN and get in your Bibles. Get off Twitter and Facebook and get on your knees. Stop letting the media or social media spin you into a frenzy. Psalm chapter 1 says that those who delight in God's Word, meditating On it, day and night are like trees planted by streams of water, bearing fruit in every season. Meaning that the fruit of the Spirit is present no matter the circumstances because we have a source of life that others don't have. Because we have a hope that others do not have. The ship of this world is sinking, but we are not on the ship. So we don't need to panic. We just need to attempt to rescue as many people who are on the ship as possible while rejoicing that God has brought us to safety. Does that mean that we shouldn't care about politics or policy at all? No. We should continue to advocate for what is good and, and right and just. I'm not saying that we should all go build bunkers and just ignore the world around us. But we should we should advocate for what is good and right and just and get involved in public policy, doing so knowing that ultimately our hope is not in this kingdom. And we should be a prophetic voice calling people to enter into God's eternal kingdom. And that leads to the second point. 
While Revelation 8 and 9 emphasizes God's condemnation of the wicked in the last days, chapters 10 and 11 emphasize God's call on the church in the last days. Chapters 10 and 11 shows what the church must be doing between Jesus' ascension and resurrection, and it tells us how the world will respond. As I said, there's two visions. There's the angel on the little scroll in chapter 10, and then there's the two witnesses in chapter 11. In chapter 10, John saw an angel with a little scroll. And just like Revelation chapter 5, the scroll symbolizes God's will or God's judgment. And the angel had one foot on land and one foot on the sea, symbolizing that this is a universal message. And God told John to go and take the scroll from the angel. Let me read for you verses 9 to 11. It says, So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is very similar to what God called, commanded the prophet Ezekiel to do when he told him to eat the scroll given to him when he was commissioned in his prophetic ministry. Similarly, Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 15, your words were found and I ate them. What's taking place in Revelation chapter 10 is that John is being recommissioned as a prophet to go and proclaim God's word. And the word is bittersweet. It's sweet in that God's word is true and good and just, but there's a a bitter component in that it's a, a message of judgment for the unrepentant. But this commissioning isn't just for John. As the church proclaims the same message we share in this prophetic ministry. And the next vision emphasizes this even more and gives further detail. I want to read you Revelation 11, 1 through 12. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours forth from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on all of those who saw them. 
Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. The two witnesses are not two people in history, but the church. I don't have time to go through the details, but there's ample evidence in the text to tell us that this is the case. The clearest piece of evidence is that the two witnesses are told to prophesy for 1,260 days, which is the same period of time in verse 2 that the nations are, per, are, are permitted to trample the holy city. You'll notice that <clears throat> the nations are permitted to trample the holy city for 42 months, that's three and a half years, and 1,260 days is also three and a half years. So as you're reading through Revelation, whenever you see three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, or a time, times, and half a time, that all refers to the same period of time, which I and many commentators believe refers to is symbolic for the last days. In other words, the time between Jesus' ascension and his return. So what we have here, what we're told here in summary is that the church will be persecuted throughout the last days and the church is called to prophesy throughout the last days. Okay, That's what we're being told in verses 2 to 3. And the description of the church as two witnesses clothed in sackcloth gives us a lot of insight into the content of our message that we're called to proclaim. In the Old Testament, prophets wore sackcloth to mourn the sins of God's people and to call them to repentance, much like John the Baptist. Also, if you'll recall, two witnesses were required in the Old Testament to establish an offense against the law of God. What's also notable is that the two witnesses are likened to Moses and Elijah in verse 6. Elijah shut up the sky so that it didn't rain, when he prayed, and Moses turned the Nile River into blood, and we're told that the two witnesses have similar power to be able to do this as a prophetic proclamation of judgment on those who reject their message. <clears throat> and it's especially notable that it's Moses and Elijah who are present as the two witnesses on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, confirming his identity as the Christ, the Son of God. So so what do we have here? We have a picture of the church as two witnesses in sackcloth, mourning the sins of the world, calling people to repentance, and bearing witness to Jesus' death and resurrection and to His identity as the Christ. The church has been commissioned to go into the world and to call people to repent of their sin and to trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life. And the church has been called to warn those who reject the gospel of imminent coming judgment if they refuse to trust in Jesus. That's explained further in verses 5 and 6 where we're told that there will be many who will oppose the gospel message in the church. And in response, the church will proclaim a message of judgment upon the unbelieving world. That's the fire that pours forth from their mouth there in verse 5. Now obviously this is not a a literal fire, and this doesn't mean that we should vindictively hope for harm to come on those who reject the gospel. Rather, this is a prophetic witness that we're called to bear. There is a righteous judgment for sin coming, and there is only one way to be saved. What does this look like? You might recall in Luke chapter 10, verses 8 to 12, Jesus 
commissions the 72 to go out and to proclaim the gospel two by two. And he says, enter into the towns and the cities and call people to repent. And he says, if anyone will not receive your message or won't receive you, then shake the dust off of your feet as a sign of coming judgment on them, right? That's essentially what we're being told here in Revelation chapter 11. This is what we're called to be doing as the church between Jesus' ascension and His return. Proclaim God's salvation in Christ and coming judgment upon those who refuse to repent. But Revelation 11 also reveals the response that we can expect from the world. We're told pretty clearly that the unbelieving world will hate this message. There will be a violent and vitriolic reaction from the world against this message and against the church. They will not want to hear it. I'm reminded of the story of Stephen's stoning in Acts chapter 7 as he proclaimed the gospel. Stephen called the religious authorities out in their sin and he called them to repent. And we read in Acts 7 that in response they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. And then it says they cried out with a loud voice and they plugged their ears and they rushed at at him and they stoned him with stones. They hated this message. They hated being told that they were sinners, that they were guilty, that they needed to repent. They could not hear the good news because they didn't think they needed good news. In their pride, they could not see their need for Jesus. And so they seethed with anger at the audacity that Stephen would have to tell them that they were sinners and that they needed to repent. And they literally plugged their ears. They couldn't even bear to hear it. And we have been told that the church can expect the same. Does this mean that everyone is going to hate us in the gospel? Praise God, no. There have been many and there will be, there will continue to be many who will believe We're told throughout the book of Revelation that a multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation will believe and be around the throne. But what Revelation chapter 11 is is showing us is that the general response of the unbelieving world will, will be one of hardness of heart and of rejection. Verses 7 to 10 reveals that as we near the return of Christ, persecution against the church will ramp up. Christians will be killed and the unbelieving world will attempt to silence the church's witness. And as the dead bodies of the two witnesses symbolize, there will come a time when it will appear that they have succeeded, when it will appear that the witness of the church has been completely snuffed out. The image of the bodies being left to lie in the street is meant to communicate scorn and humiliation. The world will malign and and dishonor the church. And the unbelieving world will celebrate the apparent downfall of the church, throwing a party and exchanging presents. And just as it appeared that Satan had triumphed over Jesus on the cross, it will appear that the beast has triumphed over the church. We'll get into this more in the next couple of weeks, but the beast is, symbolizes uh, satanic uh, and demonic influence operating through authoritarian government power. But it will appear that the beast has triumphed over the church But we know that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Just as Christ rose from the dead coming out of the tomb, in verse 11, the breath of life enters into the two witnesses and they are raised in the presence of a stunned, unbelieving world. 
This is symbolic of the resurrection of the saints, of all who are in Christ on the last day. And coinciding with the seventh trumpet blast, God's people will be caught up in the air as our enemies watch. And those who dwell on the earth will be terrified as they realize that the message that the church proclaimed, that the same message that they scorned is true. What do do we do with this today? How do we apply this today? One of the ways is that we need to remember as we share the gospel that we should expect opposition. That shouldn't surprise us or discourage us. Rejection in evangelism is not failure. The goal of evangelism isn't to get as many positive responses as possible. The response to the gospel is in God's hands, not ours. As soon as we start trying to finagle the gospel to elicit a positive response, we're doing what Paul warns us not to do in 2 Corinthians 4, which is to tamper with God's Word. Our goal is to faithfully bear witness to what God has said. That's how God saves people. As we obey the Great Commission, there will be suffering that comes along with that, but we will get the unmatched joy of being able to see people saved and transformed by the gospel. And we will get the privilege of fellowshipping in Christ's sufferings, drawing ever nearer to Him as we do. Too often, and I include myself in this, Christians try to run away from the cross of suffering that Jesus has called us to bear by avoiding evangelism or by watering down the gospel message. But church, there is no other way to follow Jesus. If you want to be a Christian, if you want to follow Jesus, then you are a fisher of men. Are you doing that? Does that define your life? Romans chapter 8, verse 17 says that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ if indeed we share in His sufferings in order that we may also share in His glory. Revelation chapters 8 through 11 is here to encourage the church so that we won't be surprised or caught off guard at suffering and so that we'll remember that we will be vindicated, that resurrection is coming, victory is coming, Jesus is coming. Let's let's close, wrap up our time by reading verses 15 to 19, the seventh trumpet, which describes the final judgment. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Two things happen primarily at the final judgment. The unbelieving earth dwellers are judged, 
and the saints are rewarded. In His righteousness, God will ensure that perfect justice is meted out. He will right every single wrong. Those who have opposed Him and oppressed His people will face His wrath. And all of God's saints will enjoy the reward of everlasting life in the new heavens and the new earth. But the best part is described in verse 19. We will be in the very presence of God. Whereas access to God and His presence was once limited to the high priest once a year in the temple, there is no temple in the new creation. Access to God will be unhindered and joyful and open to all of the saints, for all of God's people. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we prepare to close. It may appear that the world is spiraling out of control and that evil is winning. And it may even appear as you look around you that the church is being defeated. But brothers and sisters, Revelation 8-11 through reminds us that evil will not prevail. And though we may suffer for our faithful witness, we will be vindicated and raised to everlasting life in the presence of God forever. So, church, we must faithfully continue to proclaim God's message of salvation and of coming judgment amidst vehement opposition because it is true, because it will come to pass. Let's not lose heart. Let's press on and remember that Jesus is coming back. Amen? Let me pray, and then we're going to stand and we're going to sing. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, um, for saving us, for rescuing us, and that we are uh, not uh, on this sinking ship, which is this present world, God, but that uh, we have a greater hope. We have a resurrection hope. I thank you um, for that reminder this morning. Lord, I pray that you would help us to continue to hold fast to the gospel and that you would give us uh, the faith and the boldness to, to continue to proclaim the gospel even amidst great opposition. I pray that you'd hold us fast, God, until the day of your return or until the day when we stand before you. And I pray for anyone in here that does not know you. God, please soften hard hearts. God, may they not harden their hearts. Lord, it's not my desire that anyone in this room would perish. Lord, it, it horrifies me to think that, that there could be some in this room who will be among those stunned and shocked with their jaws on the floor people who watch as the sky is cracked and Jesus returns and they realize that they rejected the only message of salvation that there is. Oh God, please grant the gift of salvation to those who don't know you this morning. Please open eyes this morning. May no one leave this place not knowing for certain that they are saved, that they know you. God, we love you. We worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.